Hello, welcome to Nerd Up number 76. And today we're going to be talking about all the complicated things to do with application design in Node.js. And I have here with me a fantastic panel of Aria Stewart, Dustin Diaz, Reynos, and myself. Aria, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I work on the Kraken team at PayPal. I work on the internationalization components and uh, giving a lot of attention to application configuration and structure. Awesome. Dustin? Yeah, I work on stuff. God, I don't even know what to say about myself anymore. But I help build products in Node and never stop building, basically. <laughs> I don't know what else you want to know. So. Well, have you built anything interesting that people might know? No. <laughs> I uh, Previously, I was on Gmail and then early Twitter and then Medium and a little bit of time at change.org. At the moment, I'm starting a new thing backed by Expo, which is this sort of startup studio thing. And that's a lot of fun. Cool. Sounds great. Reynos, how about you? Hey, Reynos. I've done a lot of open source math science and stuff that's just cool in Node. And right now I work at Uber and um, I try and make Node awesome and I try and make it work at scale. Great stuff. Okay, and I'm Tim Oxley. I'm an engineer at NodeSource. And I've been struggling with you know the various ways of building applications in Node for a long time. And that's why I wanted to organize this, this Node up. So let's get started after our first sponsor, Lyft Security. One of the amazing sponsors. So building an application or service is already hard enough, then dealing with security gets in your way. So security doesn't have to be painful, annoying, or frustrating, and you definitely don't have to summit the security mountain alone. Adam Baldwin and the team at Lyft Security, that's L-I-F-T, they want to guide developers in building more secure node applications. They're the founders of the Node Security Project and already help secure tools you use every day, like we all know GitHub and Node's Package Manager. NPM, a core service Lyft provides is security assessments. An assessment helps identify and prioritize spots to improve security and mitigate risk, then offers recommendations and strategies for building more securely in the future. Lyft Security also provides in-person and online to help you and your team understand common vulnerabilities, their impact, and how to prevent them. That said, if you're interested in bringing a security-first mindset to your team's development process, go ahead and contact the Lyft team security at liftsecurity.io or just get them on Twitter at liftsecurity. There you go. Okay, awesome. So, <laughs> part one, application design. You know, one of the questions that I get from a lot of people, you know, when they're first starting Node is, you know, how do they go about building an application? Uh, you know, they're coming from languages like, you know, Java, Ruby, Python, which all have very strong... Um, Typing. You know, ways of... <laughs> strong ways of doing things. And there's sort of, you know, you, you get books like the, the, the Rails way and things like that. When you're going to build a, a Node application, you know, how do you go about building it? What's your, what's your approach? What's the, you know, where, where do you start? Um, do you go with like a top-down approach or bottom-up or, yeah? I go straight for the, for the monolith. That's usually the easiest way to go. And they seem to get the biggest slack lately for the wrong way of doing things. But if you're actually just trying a new idea and you have no idea what you're doing, this is great for startups, I, I would say, as opposed to existing companies and you're building new features, etc. But just go with 
the big framework that you might know as opposed to whatever. But at the same time, I can't say I always start that the same way. I also just use tons of libraries that whatever I think is going to work, then I just pick them and learn as I go. So that's that's my initial take on building a new node application. I see. So you'll kind of just like flesh out as much as you can all in the one place um, rather than uh, – I know a lot of other people will, will start with just like building a whole bunch of you know little pieces. They'll like identify a single component and then just go build that mm-hmm. component and then they'll assemble them all together later. You might – maybe Brainos, I, I think you, this is something you might have had experience with. So I'll start off with saying I agree with Dustin. If like either A, you don't know what you're doing, or B, you're building like a new thing and like you don't really know what it's going to be, either from like a technology or project point of view, picking some off-the-shelf framework after a bit of choice and like sticking to a monolith, way easier. But totally. once you like kind of know what you're doing, either product-wise or oh, yeah. just like tools that you have, maybe inside a large company, you'll definitely want to start doing things in a modular way. One of the techniques we use, because we already know what we want to build, like we already built the big app, which is Uber, and now we want to like make it actually scale, is to take these new services and realize that like when you build a new service from scratch and you have like a really small scope, that, that vision is going to die. Like You might want to build a microservice, or you might have these visions of really small microservices, but they're going to grow and grow and grow. We structure each new application with multiple package JSONs and multiple folders and multiple test folders in such a way that we kind of like realize that it might grow into a monolith. But if it does, we already have multiple packages that we can break out into new services or into new projects, um, which you just need to do that. Having seen existing monoliths that don't have that and having tried to break a monolith into two parts three months of work and like it's worse it is completely worse trying to break a monolith in two so you're describing having um you've got one package which contains lots of little packages yeah we have one service that's conceptually like a process and a git repository and we preemptively have multiple folders and multiple package stations inside it instead of this notion that like a single node app or a single node like process only has one package JSON. Okay, yeah, okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm moving to something similar in, in my own apps. What about you, Ari? How, how are you doing things? When I get started on an application, I mostly jump in and start writing. Yeah, first thing is start a repo and get going. But I start perusing the NPM registry for uh, packages I may want to use or modules and see if I can start collecting which pieces of the ecosystem is this thing going to fit into. I tend to write small modules, so I definitely lean more towards services and more towards small modules than a module than a massive application. But I will I'll start writing a monolith. I'll pick a framework or a uh, set of libraries I want to work with initially, and I'll start going. But then keep an eye for which things am I going to modularize, which pieces are we going to tear out, and how can we isolate them from each other? I start asking those questions really early. What about like tests and and uh, that kind of stuff? When when you're building a monolith, it's a lot easier, I find, to, to break it up if you've got like you know tests around it. Um, Absolutely. Especially interface tests, kind of the intermediate between integration tests and unit tests. Especially if you have an idea of where your module boundaries are going to be, test those really solidly. And you start writing down the interfaces that you actually care about as what you're testing. So that hopefully when you break things up, you already know where the lines are. 
Dustin, did you have something to add there? I was only just thinking of, of my, my definition of a monolith. I think of it as, as like the one big repo that does everything. Definitely I'll go for like a thousand sub modules and I'll have like a giant package JSON. So not necessarily a framework that does all the work, but it's just like connecting a bunch of tiny things. I'm like writing SQL in the same app and I'm, you know, hitting that API from the same app. It's just kind of all over the place. It's kind of like a mix between both of them. So the Node app can be considered the monolith. I forgot who is who said it, but they hit it right on the head with when you have a monolith and you're trying to break that up into services, it just becomes two monoliths. And I totally agree with that in, in that I've seen this happen twice. Once at change.org where they had the big Rails 2.0 app and you know everyone got religion and you know uh, we need to do stuff in node and that's the only way we're going to get more engineers to come in the company etc cetera, etc cetera. so we did a node you know what we, a lot of people are now dubbing the new front end back end and then we had to break up a router inside nginx you know some of these requests go to rails and some of these requests go to node sometimes from node you got to go call the old rails app etc and it just became a massive nightmare and honestly that would have just been better off like tacking more onto the regular old rails app and then you know it makes me sad to say like you know you know get rid of the node developers and just hire more rails people but anyway it, it was kind of a crazy mess interesting we had a yeah. similar uh experience working in php and bringing in some node but we actually had a lot of success by breaking things off through a message bus features and various pieces we could start by just mm-hmm. taking an rpc interface over the message bus so that it they were uh, function calls, but in wrapping them up in the message bus, then we can move on to a more elegant architecture later, making the RPC interface have a little bit more caching semantic or a little bit more retriable. And so it stopped being RPC and started being something a little bit more, a little bit different. And that ended up being pretty good because we ended up with a, uh, a multi-language project where each piece seemed to be doing the right thing, but it gave us a, a way to move earlier to moving things out into services by having the having RPC be an option. Cool. And so... When you're, when you're building stuff, do you build things as you need them or do you sort of like preempt everything and try to get sort of a loose structure in? There's uh, two processes, one, you know, one of fleshing everything out and like having mocks and stubs or, or even just like, a, like a, a, a simple version of whatever you want. And the other one is just kind of only focusing on the, your, your immediate need. I don't know. I think I do both. If it's a blocker, I'll jump in and do it. Otherwise, I will try to defer the decisions until later when I know more what I'm doing. I think the more I put off, the more I understand my application by the time I get there. If you guys were starting a new Node app, what would you use? What technologies? Uh, I mean, I, I know that that really depends on you know what technology, you know what kind of Node app you're building. But if you were just building a, a generic Node app, I mean, where where would you start? Generic. Uh, Is there something common? <laughs> this is something common across all Node apps. I, I feel like Express has really taken that you know generic thing for web applications where it gives you, especially with the new 4.0 stuff, it makes a lot more sense. It's way less opinionated now. I don't know if that's good or bad for less or more people, but it's got a middleware structure and that's really, you know, it plus it's, uh, it's router database stuff. I feel like it's all up to what you're comfortable with. You know, we use Redis for sessions and I don't know. It, Larger data from there can either go Postgres or cloud search or EMR or whatever you want to do. 
I don't really know. I, I do have my standard set of testing libraries that I know I like using, but other stuff in general can change from app to app. Well, what what testing libraries would those be? For linting, JS Hint. Uh, I like, really like SuperTest because it mends well with kind of the express routing and, and whatnot. Mocha, just for the, the entire runner. Chai, Chai's Promise. Oh, I guess Mocha has promises anyway. And sign on as well. They all sort of work out well. And then the proxy choir stuff is really is really nice for I guess stubbing out requires. <laughs> and yeah, that all integrate. You can you can migrate these things into Travis or Circle. It's all up to whatever you're comfortable with paying with or paying for or not paying for. Uh, I don't know. Ooh. What about anyone else? I think I personally jump in with Express because of my tendency toward minimalism, but PayPal actually wrote Kraken as a response to Express's unstructuredness. started in Express 3, but in Express 4 especially, there is no structure imposed on you. And we found that for scaling up to large teams and a lot of teams who are coming from Java and didn't have a lot of experience laying out node apps, having a little bit more structure really, really helped. So Kraken itself is just configuration. It's a middleware loader and just a little bit of uh, consistency. We have a module called Express and Routin, which loads a directory full of controller code or handler code and give it, assigns it URLs based on the file names so that there's a little bit of a mapping from URL to file name and we can get away from having so much loaded in, say, index.js. So we have index.js be a little bit of a stub and then defer things out into route handlers because we're working with a lot of frontier applications. So serving up HTML, serving up actual forms and responses there. It's worked out pretty well, and it's given some teams a lot of runway. Well, we've gotten a lot of applications deployed that way now. Kraken, I think, is it's one of the, the bigger frameworks, for like the framework frameworks for, for Node outside of Express, as far as I know. Yeah, and yet it's, uh, its readme is actually bigger than the, than the core module. Huh. Uh, well, there's not much to it, but it's just laying out structure. That's its entire purpose. Rainos, do you have any uh, like other like go-to packages that you use for just you know setting up a Node application? So when we run Node applications here at Uber, I think one of the most important things is not the things you should use. It's more about your team or your company, like having consistency with the way the team is doing things rather than the way like you as an individual think you should do things, or having consistency with the way the company is doing things is like really important. So obviously at Uber we have some you know, decisions around how we structure applications and we have some stuff that's closed source. If I were doing things myself or with like a smaller team and a smaller company, I would probably stick as close to the, as close to the bare bones as possible. I offered HTTP framework for just cobbling together modules with a HTTP server. But that aside, there are a couple of things you need for every node application. You need to go and grab a logger, pick your logger of choice. I do we use Logtron. You need to go and grab a monitoring tool. You want to be able to, you know, send out meta information about the health and status of your process into something that can do graphing. We use StatsD in Graphite. You want to make sure that you do the correct thing on uncalled exceptions. Uh, we have an uncalled exception module. You want to make sure that every application you run is instrumented in such a way that you can ask it for a heap dump or a CPU profile without having to be like, oh, 
I forgot about that. Let me go and add it to my project and redeploy it. And you want to make sure that your application is configurable from the start. So you need to have some kind of config loader. Those are the baseline you need for a node service. Everything else is really tied to like what kind of app you're building or you know what are the tools your companies use. So, so all of that stuff that you, you just described, I mean, where, where do you set that up? Is that just in like in, in the you know the root of your monolith, or or is it just kind of sort of distributed information spread amongst the the applications? So that jumps into our folder structure a little. Um, we have a folder at the top level called clients, and in there we're supposed to instantiate the concrete client of all of these stateful things that talk to external services. So you would have like a client slash logger.js, a client slash heap dump.js, a client slash whatever.js, and an index.js inside the client that would export um, all of the stuff. So we would have it all the way in a separate folder. And then, yes, you know, your entry point, your app.js, or your server.js would have to import that and use it. Okay. So there's a lot of, you know, good tools in there that you described for just like uh, generic applications. But what if we were building, you know, specific types of applications, such as if we're building like a, a content serving application like uh, Imager or Medium, do you guys have any suggestions on, on tools which you would use for something like that? Yeah, so I did some initial work on Medium. I really only had about two major contributions to that. A lot of people worked on a lot of different parts. Medium was a funny structure only because of the people who worked on it came from two different backgrounds. If anyone knows Dan Pupias, he's like this brilliant engineer that he also started the Closure Library and worked on founding Gmail team, etc. Super smart, and he also helped a lot with the Closure compiler, or at least give advice on that. And I came from this more, God, I don't even know what kind of background, but basically not that kind of background. It was more sort of the functional style. I had some YUI work background and, and, and jQuery and, and whatnot. And, and I did this other thing called Ender, which is very much like this thing that eventually now everyone started using Browserify. So just think of Browserify. And one of the initial things on it was a mix of like jQuery-isms and Clojure-isms. So you had to do all these JS doc symbols documenting like the most arbitrary things. It was really confusing. But we started with this back-end thing called Matador, which was this sort of MVC setup that allowed you to share your views on the client and some shared code between client and server. I'm not working on that anymore. I did eventually do a spin-off of that, which I think is a lot nicer and has a lot more code reusability between client and server with this thing called Wigan, sort of like Ender Wigan. The whole, that was supposed to be the whole pun of it. Uh, Ender is all the, the client-side stuff and Wigan is all the server-side stuff. But with Medium, the the goal was to obviously keep it simple. I would imagine everyone says that what they're doing is simple, but simple routes coming into controller actions, and you call models from there, and then you render back a view. And it was all push and pop state on the client. Actually, Dan Pupais has, has written a lot of good SPA articles on Medium itself, SPA meaning single-page application. I definitely recommend go checking out his work on that offline, or obviously online. 
Yeah, I, I don't know. We we started with the whole just just use Node for everything, and even Node for your build processing and your build scripts. This is prior to things like Grunt and Gulp and all these other make file replacement build task things and whatnot. It's basically Node for everything, and I don't really know what to say beyond that. Well, I, I guess I was just uh, wondering uh, well, the specific concerns of something like something like Medium, where you're, you know, is there is there, was there anything in, in particular? If you're building a clone of it today, yeah, uh, I would just make things more findable. I, I knew over time. This is only personal experience on it, but it was findability and understandability of the source. I think we had a lot of bright-minded people working on it, and too many, although very great opinions, just different opinions into the same source, and it sort of made things harder to find or figure out how they worked. Yeah, so I guess that comes yeah. back to what Reynos was saying earlier about having consistency uh, in your team. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and you, you, th you think that that's, that's valuable as opposed to letting, letting people's personal styles flourish? Yeah, I, I know there's like some folks at NPM who don't even agree with the whole like, you know, linting model that you should be able to jump in and read anything. I don't know. It's tough. I mean, I know it's all JavaScript, but there's so many different flavors of it. It's just like everyone speaks English, but everyone can have a different accent all over the world. And sometimes it's extremely hard to understand someone with a heavy Scottish accent. You're like, what the hell are you saying? And and you have a hard time communicating. And even though it's all English or, in our case, JavaScript, I just it, it's nice to have some consistency, even even early on. One of the things that I've found when building apps in an environment that has a a style guide or a particular structure is that it becomes particularly difficult to kind of get out of that. As in, it, it's kind of like you're. If your if your baseline is a bunch of broken windows, it's a lot easier to go in and replace the windows with new, better windows. What do you think about that? As in, it's kind of like evolving, evolving the code base. Yeah, it's kind of hard to evolve a code base when you have a strong style like that because the temptation to match style is or to do things the way they've always been done is so hard when you need to do something new or reorganize. You end up with a lot of temptations to reformat the entire code base or to sprinkle promises into absolutely everything or any of those big stylistic changes. And it can be a really, really difficult time. So having more modularization and having styles contained to those modules can be a real help sometimes, even having more styles than just a single one throughout the entire project. Totally agree. <laughs> totally. But like the second note as well, like having consistency in styles is important inside a code base or package, which means if you have lots of small packages owned by lots of teams, that's where you can vary things up and you get that freedom back. Another thing I was just thinking, um, that, yeah, that's a great point. When, you, when you're going to build an app, do you tend to build, build horizontally or do you build vertically? So a lot of people, especially people who are you know, trying to build something without a framework, what they'll do is they end up building, you know, the old adage is that if you start with no framework, you end up building a framework. One, is that true? And two, is there a way to build an app where you don't like end up building vertical stacks, you end up building horizontal stacks? I think some of each, at a certain point, you end up, you can't build too many tiers or too many layers deep before you start having to go horizontal. 
uh, you can end up with these real silos of code. Otherwise, you, where you end up with a, a single service that does everything and it wraps the database and you can't scale it because uh, it's all bundled up into a single unit. But at the same time, if you go horizontally, you never actually end up with a cohesive app. You never end up with consistency of interface. So there's a tension there. I think you have to uh, start breaking things out maybe two or three layers deep, get some data and deeper structure, some business logic layered on top of that, and then try to separate out the HTTP concerns and the actual serving concerns and deployment so that you can uh, not drive yourself crazy having all of those mixed together. I, I guess what I'm asking is, I see, especially a lot of beginners when they start with a Node app, what they'll do is they'll end up building a whole bunch of like kind of like simple abstractions, like they'll build like a, a model, which will handle like data validation and you know all that kind of stuff, and then then they end up with these abstractions, which kind of like infect the whole code base. You know, maybe the abstraction itself is is good, but um, the problem is, is that if you you know if you need to if you ever want to build something smaller or you want to break apart or if you want to move away from the abstraction, you've suddenly got this thing in, in the, through the core of your whole app. Has anybody got any opinions about that? Oh, yeah, that's a big problem, especially once you're building applications where you're transmitting state to clients and everything ends up having to be serializable. So that model, it may have a rich uh, connection inside your server, but then when you ship that out to a browser and try to manipulate the same data on the client side, you're working without the ropes all of a sudden. You're either working on a thin JSON representation of it or something like that. And so dividing things up into not letting your models touch each other too much, grouping them up a little bit, not let it, having more than you know five or six entities touching each other is probably smart. Otherwise, you'll end up with uh, more coupling than you intend. That's the point where I start breaking my application up into modules or into services, one of the two. At what point do you guys decide this thing's got too big? You know, you've got this monolith you know, how, how do you know that it's it's too much? Once once there's too much magic, or I'd guess I guess I'd say any magic, I start to step back and tear things apart. I try not to build magic, and I try not to install things that are magic. <laughs> yes, definitely. I know there's um, a there's a lot of a lot of people that are fans of that, just because you know the whole quote unquote it just works model is sometimes fun if it's a real like a real problem like sockets like i god thank goodness there's like socket io which you could kind of consider that being magic but really it's a bunch of stuff that i don't feel like dealing with that is really just cross-platform work so in that regard i know it's not magic they just someone did that work but when you're like how I passed this data and I got this thing rendered and this whole dialogue and it did it for me. Like, how did that stop? I don't know. That's a, maybe a bad example. But if more and more things start confusing you and just work, it start questioning that model. I actually have two, two numbers that I use for rules of thumb for when to break things up and when not to. I mean, one is the magical number seven, plus or minus two. That's about the number of things you can actively think about at one time. If you've got more entities than that involved in a process, you probably can't model the whole process in your head unless you've got really good abstractions there where you can black box parts of it. And the other is Dunbar's number. You can't actually remember the names of more than, say, 100 or 150, maybe 200 components total in an entire application. Once you exceed that number, no one person will ever be familiar with everything. So if you have more entities than that in the system, you've really made a mess. So at a certain point, you can't get beyond the 
large bound, and you can't have uh, that small bound is the uh, number you can deal with in any one little process. So they kind of inform how many things am I dealing with right now and when do I break up that way. Yep, that makes sense. Uh, what about you, Rhinos? Knowing when to break a monolith out into smaller things is actually kind of simple. There's two things here. One, you just can't scale it anymore. Like, you just literally, you've got this monolith, and it will not scale to your production load. And at that point, you realize, oh, shit, I better start breaking stuff out. There's a good chance that at that point, it's too late, and you might have to, like, rewrite, like, go bottom up. And the other thing is not so much a scale thing, but more of a, a health like, if you have a monolith and it just blows up in production, like, every hour, at that point you know, like, okay, it can handle the scale on the load, but it's, there's just so many things going on and there's just so many fragile things that cause it to blow up every hour. Another thing that people struggle with is, you know, if, if you are breaking things up and you don't want to make stuff public, you know, how do you, how do you manage that? How do you handle... Uh, you know, private dependencies. Do you just use Git URLs? Do you have an NPM, private NPM? Or I think you described also having like a, um, you have packages within packages. Is, is that part of this process uh, that you're describing? So at Uber, we still use Git dependencies. So we have our own Git server. And then you probably don't want your own Git server. You probably just want to host it on GitHub. That's easier. And you just put links in like Git plus SSH, the entire thing hash some version number, like pointed at the version tags. And that, it's a pain, like it's, it's, it's annoying to deal with, but it will work just great. Eventually, people will get pissed off enough that someone will set up a, a private NPM registry at your company. Um, but that's, that's really just an optimization. You kind of covered this a little bit before, Reynos. When you're building the app, how do you lay out the folder structure? What's the, yeah, the top level? So one of the things we do with our folder structure, and we're trying this for every single new surface here at Uber, is to separate the, the top level concerns of a service, which is it has some kind of public interface over networking, probably a HTTP server. So we put all the HTTP related code that defines the, the public interface for the service in a folder called endpoints. Then we take all of our, you know, what people might traditionally call um, data layer or like services or like the lowest level stuff. Uh, we put it all in a folder called server. It's really boring. And then everything else that's actually logic for your service, that's actually, um, you know, the, the piece of value you're generating with this new service you're writing, we put it in, again, the most boringly named folder, it's literally called business. And each one of these guys has a package JSON, and the only rule we have is you don't require up-up out of the boundaries of these folders. That's as much as we have, and we hope, it seems to be working so far, that this leads to a situation where your entire application is not like really, really tightly coupled together, because we have a monolith that's really tightly coupled together, and so difficult to break that one apart. Cool. Dustin, what about you? I may as well just go based off of what I'm building now. It's like a, if anyone's built Heroku apps, it looks sort of like 
that as far as deploying it goes. Uh, it's a Docker app, so you have a proc file and a scale file. We put the workers in app, so we have a folder called workers, and those can just be individual node files in which you know, the proc file will just call node on that worker, and you can scale those up to one, two, however many machines you feel like paying for or processes you feel like paying for. Uh, there's a folder called tasks, which are simple build things. I've yet to fully convince myself to use a task runner because I have really usually pretty simple tasks, put stuff on S3 prior to deploying, bundle up these last files, gzip stuff, bundle them, minify, etc. with uglify. There's a folder called shared, which is literally the, the shared utilities between client and server. The only rule of thumb or not rule of thumb, but the rule, otherwise it won't work, is that anything that goes in shared is not allowed to require other stuff that is in specifically in server or client. So that said, there's a client folder, which is all the client controllers and utilities, etc. There's a shared config routes, which is the routes for the server and the client. There are separate controllers for the server and client. And then app is just a folder that contains models, views, and controllers. And we could share the same views. We're, we're just using Jade with the compiled version, using the Jade compile blah, and then the little client-side conversion script that they have. So you can use those same views and render them on, I don't know, to some any random DOM node and whatnot. It looks yeah. very traditional and basic, but it really helps us find things. If we want to build a new app, uh, we'll just spin up another one of these as opposed to multiple clients and whatnot, which is very clever, by the way. I just don't think I've built something that had merited that. So we do have one package, JSON, and it has nearly everything that we need in it, which is roughly, I don't know, 70, 80 modules or so. And where, where does that yeah. live? Just like at the yeah. top level? Yeah, in the root, next to the readme next to the new relic file and the git ignore, et cetera. Aria, what about you? Interesting uh, there that you guys have such, they're, they're actually really different structures than uh, what I would have expected. PayPal goes for a real plurality of apps. Like even just on the main PayPal site, there's like 30 or 40 different applications that somebody might interact with. And you actually go between them, they're each siloed under different pieces of the URL and some are only accessible to some people and some to others. So each app is actually kind of simple. Each one will have like a config directory with some JSON files describing the name of the application and some of the uh, URL prefixes and the middleware that they use because Kraken actually moves the middleware config out of code and into JSON because we found that people did, were less likely to do something really, really clever if they were limited to what they could express in JSON. Then we'll have like a lib directory, which is where a lot of the guts of that particular application will live. And then we'll have a routes or controllers directory, which is the bits that bind it to HTTP. So the that's where the express routers will go, or express routes will go. Uh, we use express and route, and so that the names within that map to URLs. So we might have an index or a home directory in there. We might have a wallet directory for some part of the PayPal application. We'll have a tests directory, and then most of our actual service layer stuff are separate modules. Every service publishes a client. So all of those things are installed via packages. So all of our service wrappers on all, all of our 
client code for talking to the next layer down all live in node modules. And then, because most of our apps are pretty heavy on the front end now, we have a public directory which has all of the assets and all of the templates and all of the pieces that you need to send to the browser. That said, we actually have a, another directory called build, which is where all of the stuff is output. After we run build steps on it, we compile all of our templates into being JavaScript functions and we minify CSS assets and we build a whole bunch of things there. And ultimately, a lot of that stuff will get copied onto the CDN for serving. So we, uh, we have a kind of a, an, a structure you'd see in a lot of Express apps, but made a little bit more regimented by Kraken's configuration modules and the Express and Routing module. A lot of this, we, we have a boilerplate that's spit out just by using a generator. We have a, a public one on the Kraken website and then private ones within PayPal for making different kinds of applications using Dust as for templates or people are starting to experiment now with React and stuff like that. But kind of a very traditional Express app with just a little bit more structure. I think that's like that's good. You know, nice contrast there between different ways of building stuff. We'll put the uh, like example folder structures uh, in the show notes. So if, you, if you're listening, you can go check them out and you don't have to remember what everybody had there. Another big one is configuration. It's, a, it's often tricky, uh, especially if you're trying to share configuration you know, between you know, lots of little pieces uh, and you need to have different configurations for different environments and it needs to, you, know, you, you want to be able to, to boot things up by changing configuration on the command line and you know, all this kind of stuff. How do you guys handle config? Like I was talking about earlier with Kraken, that was actually something we paid a lot of attention to and actually changed drastically through versions of Kraken. We started off using nconf which had the downside that configuration was process global. So if you wanted to run tests or anything like that, there's a lot of cases where people were tempted to stuff things into the configuration at runtime. And so the configuration was no longer stable over the course of the application. So in Kraken 1.0, a module was created called confi, conf it, which loads, Kraken starts, it loads the confi module and looks for a JSON file that matches the environment it's running in. because PayPal does a lot of start in dev mode and then move to a move in for testing and then ultimately end up in a production mode. So we have different configurations for that because URLs differ and all, there's a little bit of difference between them. But it actually, the only time you can get a hold of the configuration is once Kraken has fully started and you have a reference to the Kraken object, you can do it, which is kind of like the express object. Or if you need to access the configuration during start, there is an event emitted once the configuration files have loaded because it's all asynchronous. That's the only time you can actually get a hold of the configuration, which made people be really structured about configuration. You have to pass it in to the modules and really chain things together carefully so that configuration was controlled and not just ad hoc stuffed in anywhere it fit. That matches a bunch of apps that I've built. Rhinos, what about you? We have a module that's open source called Zero Config we use. It's based around the notion that you want the configuration files checked into Git. We aggressively have only like two, production.json and local.json. Actually, we, we have more files. We have one for every single data center because once you get the scale, you want to change the configuration depending on which data center you're running in, especially if you want to migrate to different data centers. But that's all static, static at startup. Uh, we actually freeze the config objects, people don't mess with it. The more interesting thing around configuration is dynamic configuration. We run a service for dynamic configuration, which you can you know, ask 
you can just ask it remotely, like, what is the configuration of my service? And we use it for everything. We use it for turning on features. We use it for, when you say turning on features, I mean like feature branches, like new code. We use it for turning on or off parts of your application. So if you split up like the user part of your application from this part of your application, if something goes wrong, you can just shut one part of your application down and it contains cascading failures. We use it for changing every little thing that we have, whether we have validation on or off, whether, what, what are the timeouts? And everything else you need to like be able to shield yourself at runtime um, from cascading failures. Whenever something goes wrong with some part of your complex system, you can go like, oh shit, something went wrong over there. I don't have time to redeploy my other apps. Let me change the configuration on the fly right now and protect your applications. Okay, that sounds yeah, that sounds really powerful. Uh, so, how do you change that? Like, do you just have a is it a you know is it a UI or is it um, some sort of deploy process? We have an entire like service, like an entire cluster of services that are deconfiguration services. And right now they're closed source, which is sad. But they have a front end, and you can make changes to them, and you make changes on a per service basis. You can also make global changes to to the system through the UI, but if you're going to make a global change, you're going to need to have that checked out by senior engineers because any kind of global change you make can cause severe cascading outages. Like, this is this is a serious tool that you've got to treat with respect. Configuration is, you know, one part that confuses people. Another part is views and, you know, where to render them. Now, I don't want to get into, like, a big discussion about performance here because, you know, there, there's a – I think we're all pretty – it's kind of common knowledge now that a hybrid approach is sort of the, the fastest, um, but that's not necessarily you know, the easiest way to, easiest thing to set up. I guess what I'm interested in is how does your app go about actually generating the views? I mean, you answered a bit of it, which is good. Assuming when you say where and how, I'm guessing you're talking about client versus server. Yeah, correct, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, do both. Obviously, you want to render as much as you can on initial page load. It's just proven to be faster that way. Not always necessarily easy, depending on the kind of application. With the example of like Gmail and all their application state and everything is in the client, they're going to render everything with the client or on the browser with the browser. I, I pick and choose. If I'm requesting data from the server, I'll try to render back HTML if I can. If it's something like a dialog or a new tile of some kind, I'll have a client-side view ready to take in JSON. It's really just, I don't know if there's a real answer for this, but... So you're sort of, you're just rendering it wherever it was sort of triggered sort of thing. Like if it was something triggered in the UI, you would um, render it in you know, client side, but if it was something... Yeah, I'll have like little small components rendered with client side views, you know, with the Jade setup. From page to page, you know, even with push and pop state, I'll have each page. I, I have this setup where I have like, like if you have a home controller and you have a show action, so you have home show. I'll also have a show include, which has the ability to only render back the like main content of that thing, like everything else that is important and different, uh, with the exception of the Chrome, 
and other like global elements. So, you know, from user A to user B, I'll just render all that on the server and then do a push date. Um, just plop in like in, in, in the main like content div or, or, or something like that. But if it's just like, oh, pop up this dialogue, there's no real reason for me to go request something on the server, just have like a client-side template ready. I do as much as I possibly can to make Jade templates, even for potentially like small things, like if, even if it's like two or three divs or something, rather than just doing like a jQuery create these divs and enter HTML sort of thing, you're not getting all the proper escaping and security rules that you get with almost any client-side templating thing that goes for mustache or handlebars, jade, all those things. They'll do the quotes and side attributes and, or any kind of XSS things. They'll try and prevent you from doing something stupid. So I, I stick close to just putting the template in a separate file. Yeah, it'd be good to hear other thoughts, though. Yeah. I think that's uh, one place that React shines really well is that it actually has the ability to synchronize state between server and client, so an initial render on the server can be picked up by the client and uh, won't re-render. It's really impressive what they've done nice. with that. Yeah. It's, it's magic. One of the main features of React. Yeah, it really is magic. <laughs> but magic that works. I was shocked. Yeah. I was cool. absolutely shocked that I couldn't find ways to break it. <laughs> so uh, is anybody doing like rendering in multiple locations within within your app, as in having different services rendering different components or is everybody like you know everything just kind of has to go through the the one final application before before it hits the the, the user uh, and you just do all the view rendering there view setting up what do you mean can you clarify like oh like so sometimes you might have like different applications you know rendering different parts of your app or you maybe you for example maybe okay so you've got a Different. Let's say you've got uh, like a list of popular blog posts or something, uh, and that's something which it's like the only piece of your app which needs to be dynamic or something. This is a bad example, but maybe you might put that in its own process and render it separately, and then kind of assemble it later through through JavaScript. To, to give a to give a proper example of what I think you're talking about, at Uber we have a thing called tools.uber.com. And it's like a GUI used by like engineers and ops people, and it shows you everything possible about the company in like one monolith. And we tried to rewrite the monolith, and now we have two monoliths. Um, and finally, we get into the point where we've built this kind of proxy service, and we're putting like all the separate pages and tabs for the tools websites in their own services, maintained and like owned by like individual teams. Yeah, that's exactly what I was talking about. Yeah, spot on. So, so you're doing that at Uber? Someone's doing that at Uber, not me. Like, I work on my real-time team. I don't have to do front-end, which is uh, a blessing and a curse. But yes, they're definitely playing with that, and they're going to run into all the fun problems of figuring that out. <laughs> okay, so one final thing I'd like to touch before we go to the next sponsor is how do all this... All the things that we just discussed, you know, there's a lot of like you know, great approaches there, but are these things which you should necessarily be tackling in your your MV, MVP? Most of the stuff you guys are all, you know, you're on the long haul road. As in, you you guys need to focus on maintainability rather than necessarily moving fast. So, uh, are there any concerns you know that you guys have uh, around structuring 
you know, the, the difference between structuring a, a big app versus structuring a quick throwaway MVP? I don't think uh, moving fast and maintainability are mutually exclusive, which generally seems to be a popular belief. I think you can still follow a set of guidelines and principles that help you move fast and potentially, uh, you know, when you're building an MVP, it's really important to move fast and just figure out what you're trying to do. I'm definitely in the middle ground where I'm still in it for the long haul, but don't you just can't get too attached to what you're building, not the not the product, but like the the code you're actually writing, and be ready to just throw entire modules away or features or or whatever. Think this comes with just time and experience and, and figuring out what helps you work more proficiently or and efficiently. <sighs> yeah, structure and pattern guidelines and hinting rules and style guides, those can all help you just move quicker as opposed to like trying to figure out how you're going to go about building something. I think everyone on this on this podcast is definitely in it for the long haul. But when you're building new features, you know, what you have to figure out what your MVP is. It's a balance of the two. If you can, try and prototype it completely separate out of your app and figure out what those features are. Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of shipping you know, pushing stuff out to production, but that obviously doesn't work depending on, Yeah, you know, I, I probably wouldn't do that with Uber, but you, you could probably get away with it. Like if you had it under the, I don't know, Uber Labs umbrella or, or something like that, or like Google Labs and like, ah, whatever, people like it or they cannot like it. Um, if you have the ability to put up these micro apps, just trying them out with brand new applications without having to build them into your into your monolith, and, then do that. It's always good to have that MVP mindset as opposed to let's build, you know, everything from all of spec A, launch that. <laughs> There's, I don't know, I, I could just be rambling yeah. here. but You have to be yeah. able to iterate. Totally. And if you do think, if you modularize well, if you need to turn your MVP toward an, in a new direction, the easiest way to uh, change course is to just RM-R the uh, module that doesn't work, <laughs> that didn't work <laughs> nice. out. So yep. modularization is useful for that. Totally okay. that. Like modules are great because you can write lots of modules and you can npm or rem half of them. And that's that's just something you've got to be really comfortable with because it's going to make your software amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And with that, let's bring in the next sponsor, Anjet. Starting today, and yet's WebRTC experts will be offering three new consulting packages to teams in need or in want of a serious development boost. They're looking to round out the year by helping your team ship something epic and innovative in the WebRTC space. Whether you're looking for help developing a new video or chat feature, a chat platform you can run on or your, on your own hardware, or using open source components, or put together a killer custom user interface on top of what you're building, you'll find what you need with the and yet team. For more information, head over to andyet.com slash webrtc. Be sure to follow them on Twitter at andyet. Okay, part two. Let's uh, talk about the Node ecosystems. You know, what are the, what are the special considerations for Node applications? Now, what, what, makes, what makes Node unique um, compared to uh, other, other ecosystems? Node is finally the first. It's unique because it's the same language now that we've already been using for almost 20 years now, and there have been experimental implementations of, of server-side JavaScript before, but none that really took off in the way that Node did. I just can't imagine building anything any other way. There is some some uptake in the Go community. I just have no actual interest in writing Go, or I haven't had anything that merited 
using something that requires the amount of speed that it does. I mean, I'm sure it's a, it's a compiled language. You get all the advantages of the optimizations you get there. But I just don't really, I mean, I mean I'm lazy. I don't want to build an, or learn another language. I'm definitely in for the long haul with JavaScript. So it's definitely unique that Node is, I guess just it's unique because it's finally here. <laughs> I think we inherited a couple of things at just the right time. I mean, we have a really unique dependency model where a lot of the dependency hell and the ways modules conflict with each other don't exist. And that's let our ecosystem grow really quickly. And I think we also might be the successors to the Perl. There's more than one way to do it because of that plurality of modules. We have so many ways to do things. I think that's really shaped Node's culture. No one true way. You can try a bunch of different solutions. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, for me, that one of the things which is the most striking and also possibly the most frustrating for beginners is yeah, the, the fact that you know, when, they, yeah, when they come to an app, a Node app, there's no like set of instructions on, all right, well, you, you, know, you put this here, you do that, you, you load up this package, and then you're done. What is it about Node which makes it so diverse, I guess? And why is there not sort of a single, single community sort of thing? I think that's done on purpose. It, it feels like that it's inherent to Node. If there was a one true way, I don't think anyone would be here. It's, you know, when you got in with Rails, it was definitely the Rails way. And it was really nice for some people when they got up and running and they could switch from one job to the next. And, you know, a Rails developer was nice and comfortable in all these places. I'd still say there is the one true way that there is for Node is that there isn't, which is kind of ironic. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think you're right there. There, you know, there's the same require system that everything that's in core is the true way, and that still sometimes seems like an experiment. Yeah, very much. Small libraries, you know, decoupled, all those fun key buzzwords that we all like. Uh, it does seem like the true way for Node. As far as like frameworks go, like the Node community just seems like anti that, not in a bad way, just like. You know, you'll often hear what I, I think the the Node guys often talk about the Unix way of doing things, and I don't think I've ever been around or, you know, I, I'm not really like a true, or I don't know what true means, but a true backend person where they had to hang out in Unix land their whole life. But I, I can definitely appreciate the philosophies that are coming in from the Unix world into into Node. I grew up with the Unix way, and. It, Node is one of the first places where I really feel like that has stayed as a cultural value. Ruby had it early on. Perl has it to a good degree. But uh, a lot of other programming language communities don't have that more than one way to do it, lots of small modules. Let's see how we can fit these pieces together rather than building our own silo uh, approach. It's really refreshing to find that. I think that's why I'm here at Node. Cool. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, that's why I'm here as well. I think one thing which um, appeals to me is the fact that if you've got a problem, even if it's already solved, you don't have to just like live with the fact that it's it's solved. You can go and solve it again, and maybe it, it sort of uh, encourages more innovation that way by everything being sort of flexible. Another thing which is very popular with Node is uh, there's like streams and push state sort of stuff. So, you know, that, that's something which mm, it, it kind of excels at, um, it seems. Does that kind of tie in a little bit to the, the Unix philosophy 
because you know with like you know you can have a the, if the lowest common denominator is a stream then you can just pipe streams into streams and everything just works yeah is that well, I almost just answered my own question, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right there. It really does. It's an interface that actually supports composition. You can actually join things together much better than you can, say, um, inheritance hierarchies and classes built from different bases. I guess um, another thing is the, the like the the fact that global changes are kind of avoided as well. So, like, you can pull in a package and it doesn't mutate your global state. Um, right. The only output of the package is the the thing that it you know returns from the require uh, that that probably really helps for making it safe to use hundreds of packages inside your your, your node app because if if you've got a hundred packages all trying to vying for the same global namespace and trying to adjust things yeah that that well I mean that's that's the horrible situation we're in with the browser and it's it's not nice yeah exactly and that's where Ruby fell over too yeah sorry Ruby. If we're, if, we're, if we're building apps out of like lots of little little small pieces, I often find myself like struggling, well not struggling, but it, sometimes, sometimes it's hard to find good packages. Do you guys have any tips on like one, finding packages and two, evaluating whether, you know, the, uh, whether a package is right for me? It's interesting because I think a lot of people don't review the code that they uh, depend on nearly enough. But there's a lot of ways to find good stuff. Look at the ecosystem they're attached to. If you're using Grunt, look to other Grunt users. Look for packages labeled Grunt. Do an NPM search, and you'll find a lot of a lot of things there. Sometimes it only takes five or six minutes to really do a good survey, and you'll be able to discard a lot easily. But looking in the ecosystem there, what are other packages that do something similar to what you are? What are they using? You can find a lot that way. I think I start off by reading and judging the book by its cover. You know, the typical like, how many stars does this thing have? Okay, when was it last? When was the last commit? Then, if it's low stars, okay, how many commits has this thing had? You know, how old is the repo? Uh, is it maintained or not maintained? And sometimes non-maintenance isn't the worst thing for me. It's you know, if, yeah, if it works. Sometimes modules and, are done. Yeah, that's what I don't yeah, we've we've had this like back and forth within the last few years about, you know, building a module and letting it rot, so to speak, and I don't fully agree or or disagree. It's just I yeah, I, I think you're right. Like sometimes they are done and it should be fine. I don't know. I get a lot of crap for like sometimes just I don't know, not quote unquote maintaining a, a module anymore. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, I've still been using this in production for the last two years and it's been working just fine. I mean, um, the, the problem is that there is so much stuff on NPM which is which has rotted. And I think maybe you get a hard time for not maintaining them, but maintenance, all it really needs to be is just go and update the dependencies. It shows that you've actually looked at the thing I mean, because that's that's the I guess the primary concern is that you know a lot of people they build something and then they n- never look at it again, and it's just showing that you've got like active involvement with the with with the package. Yeah, simply updating the updating dependencies um, is a really simple well, way. That's a huge to, thing. Yeah. Yeah, and making sure the tests pass, obviously. And I think another thing is is that any dependency exposed in the interface, say if you depend on Grunt, that's something that you actually expose. Your users will have to care about which version of Grunt they use it with. If you write a stream module, whether it uses Stream 1 or Streams 2, 
those things, if those dependencies aren't kept up to date or if you haven't accommodated the changes in that part of the ecosystem, that's where the lack of maintenance really bites you. So evaluating those things specifically I think is really useful. When I try and find packages, I go a lot around trust. So whether that be trusting people in my company, seeing what they've used, seeing what they've offered, or whether that be trusting people that I've you know, seen online and I've seen that they've done great work or I've met them in person and like, they're really smart. Looking at the modules used by people that I hope can make good decisions and looking at the modules written by people that I hope can make good decisions, that's my go-to for finding modules. I think there's a, a lot to be said for going out to you know, meetups and things like that and meeting people um, who are building things for the Node ecosystem because if, you're, if you meet somebody and then you find that there's a package by them and then there's a package by somebody else, you probably pick the one with, you know, by the person that you know personally because if you have a problem with it, you can, you, know, you can find a way to get in contact with them and say, hey, man, I need this, or lady, I need this thing fixed, can you fix it? I really believe in you know, you know getting face to face with with developers. I think that's a, a really good way of finding you know finding the right people to be associating with and the right packages. So, yeah. Any other metrics that you guys use? I always look at the README. Somebody who actually describes things simply enough to fit in a README is wonderful. Sometimes I'll have to look for API docs if it's a bigger package, something where the use isn't obvious, and always. Read the source. See if you can understand it. If you can't at least get the gist of how something is done, you probably don't want to depend on it. You'll spot the magic really quickly there because you'll smell the rat. It's it's pretty obvious when somebody's doing something uncouth under the hood. Yeah, I, I think that that brings us to the uh, next point uh, by Rain also, which is you know owning what you find. So if if you can't understand the source, you can't possibly own it. Um, as in, well, I'll let you explain on that. So. Perhaps. Owning every single thing you install, every single thing you depend on, just became a part of your application. When you're building a service, you're either checking shrink wrap at the Git or you're checking no modules in the Git. And that really means everything in that no modules folder, all 50 megabytes of it, that's your code. That's your application. You've got to be able to fork it. You've got to be able to maintain it until the end of time. And this means when I go looking for a package, if it's not small, if it's not simple, if I don't understand it, if it's written in a language that I don't know, I just can't use it. And this is this is just something important that you need to do to be able to really deal with production problems. Yeah, if the pager goes off, the author of the module isn't going to be the one receiving the te- the page. Oh, it totally should though. That'd be awesome. <laughs> if only we could defer responsibility <laughs> to others, wouldn't that be, make the world a better place? <laughs> We can totally get everybody's like phone numbers. Kraken would get a lot of pages then. <laughs> oh! <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay. okay. So that brings us into our next sponsor section, um, Codeship. Codeship is a free hosted continuous delivery service focused on simplicity and usability. You can set up continuous integration in a few easy steps and automatically deploy when all your tests have passed. Believe me, you don't want to set up continuous integration by hand. It's a pain. Codechip has great support for lots of languages and test frameworks, integrates with GitHub and Bitbucket, 
and lets you deploy to cloud services like Roku, AWS, Modulus, and Jitsu. CodeShip makes continuous delivery so simple, setup only takes a minute. You can sign up now to get hundreds of builds per month and five private projects for free. This should allow startups, freelancers, small teams to easily get started with continuous delivery. For anyone that needs more builds and projects, you can use the discount code NODEUP to get 20% off of any plan for three months when signing up for a paid subscription. So head over to codeship.io slash NODEUP to get started and be sure to follow them on Twitter at CodeShip. Thanks, Reynolds. Thanks, CodeShip. Part three, Node in the stack. In all of my applications, Node is just everything. I use Node for you know front-end, back-end, everything. But is that always the best solution? Are there other things which, you know, is there room for, a, are there benefits to like a polyglot solution? What do you guys think? So yeah, I, I think this is less of a discussion and more of just an answer. And the answer is yes, it's the best solution. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think we're all okay. biased. Yeah, yeah, obviously, Node podcast. So no, it is not the best solution. <laughs> Node runs yes terribly no. in production. <laughs> it crashes all the time. Yeah, obviously. I it's really funny because if everyone remembers T.J. Holloway Chuck's big move to Go, it was it felt like this big blow to the not Node but more of the community itself and and you know what we've kind of expected from someone who contributed so much. Um, I honestly like have been finding Node to be a great solution for many things that I thought it wouldn't be. Yeah, we're the thing we're building now actually has a Go API, and and that's just maintained by my co-founder, who is you know really proficient at it and gets a lot of things done with Go, and it's blazingly fast. But if I didn't have him involved with it, I would just do it in Node because it's just fast enough and. I could write things faster. Anything that Node could be used for, then I would use it for. I don't know. Maybe that's a bad way to say that, but it's definitely you know you can use it for build scripts. Uh, you can use it for the server. You obviously uh, you don't obviously use Node for the browser. Maybe Browserify is an example of using Node. Yeah, that, that's client. what I was talking about before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like okay. Node in the Node ecosystem, like Node style. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. I think there's another thing too. What trumps all of this is integration with an ecosystem. If you're working in an application that started in PHP and you're heavily invested there, maybe PHP needs to stay present for the parts yeah. that it's good at. You're not going yeah. to jump ship. You're not going to jump into an entirely different ecosystem without a major rewrite. And those are usually prohibitively expensive. So Node may become prevalent. Node may become the majority of your architecture, but Ultimately, a polyglot solution is usually the right answer once you get to a certain scale. You can move away from decisions that you made poorly in the past and toward new ones. I think Node is a great solution now, but who knows what we're going to find. So keeping the options open is good. Being open to new things is really good. A lot of times heavy math and algorithmic kind of things are sometimes not best done in JavaScript, You know, whether it's I don't know, Perl or, or, or Go, where you can do these heavy algorithm things. Or a lot of the times the algorithm you want just hasn't been written yet in JavaScript slash Node. So you install the, the either A, the Node port, or you have some other like build. And maybe it was done in Java or something. And you could be using the, the Java readability or something like that. 
Yeah, a lot of times the problem's just been solved really well in that other language. So yeah, you, you just use that. <laughs> and yeah, then absolutely. Out how how you're going to integrate it? <laughs> so yeah, and there are good yeah. integration strategies. There are ways that you can do it. And Node is actually really good at those parts. Node is really good for integration. In what ways? A lot of times, uh, Node is good for being a proxy server, something mediating between different components. Node is good for being the, it's really good at I.O., so let it do that. And that is the middleman's job. Uh, that's something that a lot of people have a lot of success with. That's what Walmart did when they were integrating Node in their stack is they wrote a big proxy in Node and had it shuttle the data between all of the different pieces, that some of which they were trying to replace and some of which they didn't. Um, I guess th that's what you were describing as well with uh, you had a, some app and needed to integrate Node, so you built in like a, it was like a message queue or something. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a good solution. I mean, are, yeah, are there... no, that was we snuck Node in the back door that way. It turns out that a lot of the things that we had for the task at hand were API heavy, making a lot of responses, things that PHP would have made very, very serial. And instead, we wanted to be able to do a lot of parallelism. Uh, bringing in Node made that really easy, and we integrated it with a message bus so that the PHP application talked to a, a Node app in the back end, but through a simple call and response message bus. And that was a very effective strategy. We had a lot of luck with that. I think that's a, a pattern that I'm seeing with, with Node is that you, you'll see Node coming in to solve a particular problem. Like, you know, they'll, they'll use it to orchestrate a whole bunch of services or they'll use it to uh, as their component for doing real time on the front end or whatever. But then, you know, people start realizing, well, hang on, it can also do all this other stuff. It's just interesting seeing, seeing Node is, it's very good at, particular things, but it's also pretty decent at, at other things. What I'd like to ask you guys is, what was the biggest mistake that you ever made when you were building a Node application? So if, if there was something which strikes you as being particularly painful and you wouldn't want anybody to ever have to go through that ever again, what would that be? One of the things that I've done most about an application is deciding that existing solutions don't work for me. And I went to like... No, well, what's true? Existing solutions didn't work for me, but I went about it the completely wrong way, which is to kind of build your own framework. And we 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 did. We built one to solve our problem, and it was poorly documented. And that's the thing that sucks a lot about not using modules that exist out in the wild. You underestimate how much effort it takes to document things. So if you're going to do that, do it piece at a time and document it piece at a time. Anybody else? <clears throat> as far as my biggest mistake building a node app and this is earlier on with my experience with node is getting this mindset that there is actually a holy grail between server and client where now that we can finally share code i thought everything on the server and client had to be shared so to speak and my first attempt at that was to have shared models and shared controllers and everything you required had to be able to work on the server and the client. And I think I've come to the conclusion that just because something can, you know, just because you're working with the same language that can be run on a server or a browser doesn't mean it has to be shared. What I end up, you know, founding myself doing was, you know, a lot of branching in the same file, like, oh, if I'm in a browser, do this. If I'm in a node, then do this and etc. It just made things a lot more spaghetti than I was expecting. 
it's okay to have separation of concerns when it comes to it. Like, what what I'm really tr trying to get at is the browser is just still a completely different world than an actual web server. So, you know, keep the mess on the browser and do your fun things on the server. I guess <laughs> I would say. One thing that I've seen go horribly, horribly wrong. I wasn't in the middle of it when it happened, but I certainly give it a nod of saying, well, that sounds like a reasonable approach at first, but wrapping everything in promises and then ending up with more promise <laughs> wrapping code than the actual application. That's uh, awesome. Going through and binding every library and uh, making an elegant promise-based interface for everything and then realizing that the rest of the world doesn't actually speak promises. <laughs> And uh, yeah. realizing that we've now gone through the event loop, you know, a hundred or a hundred thousand times for a request instead of, uh, you know, ten. And the, the other problem with promises, I, I, no, I'm not passionately for or against them. It's just I discovered that once you start using them, they kind of just infect everything. Because yeah, and and you end up like kind of deferring all the work until till the end. And ah, uh, uh, yeah, I would agree with all of what you just said. So yeah, I think no, they're a great yeah. pattern. But you have to understand the ecosystem they're in. Yeah, yeah, uh, I agree. So promises. Uh, you can have a whole episode on promises. I'm sure of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a reason that it's a uh, one of the banned topics on the node mailing list is the <laughs> virtues of promises. I think the the thing which I would try to encourage people to never do is yeah, modularizing too fast and using. And trying to build too much of your ecosystem, um, not your your structure at once. I was sort of alluding to to it earlier, but you can spend a lot of time building a whole bunch of things which you think you'll need, but you don't. It's that whole you know you aren't going to need it sort of thing. Something which I have lived through, and it is horrible. So I'm a reform developer now, and only building top down, only building things which I need right now. If I might need it, whatever. I'll wait till I do need it. So. That would be me for biggest mistake I've made for Node. And the problem is, is that you're encouraged to modularize so much that you kind of get you can get carried away with it. So, great advice. <laughs> now it's time for everybody to plug something. So, uh, Ari, would, like, would you like to kick it off? Absolutely. I would love to plug uh, Rebecca Turner's Abraxas library, which is the uh, Gearman client worker and server implementation. The server is not quite complete; it leaks memory a little bit, but it's a careful. Uh, really well written library for the Gearman protocol, which is a lightweight job queue, but it's just a model of really good API design and careful thought. It's really a great example to go learn from for how would I actually write a good client or server implementation of something. Cool, Dustin, what are you going to plug? Um, plug in this library that our me and my co-founder put together called Shinkarian. It's based on this thing called the Shinkarian analysis. You can npm install it with npm install Shinkarian. It's this method of basically analyzing tones and music and coming up with relationships and a hierarchy between those tones, which is a really hard problem just on music, but this one is based on basic English words, or I shouldn't say English, just words. And it's a way to request web pages and do topic modeling and groupings of words that any given web page is about. It sounds kind of like a, a giant task, like something that Google would figure out, but it's it's a start and it's based on the node natural module. So I think NPM is just called natural and we kind of built on top of that to figure out what any given web page is topically about. It's kind of fun. Cool. 
Jake? I will plug small modules. There's a great small module called Run Waterfall. That's it's async waterfall as a single module, and it's such a beautiful example of package JSON and 20 lines of code. I also want to talk about a really cool project. There's a WebTorrent project run by Feroz that's aiming to run BitTorrent like completely from the browser and WebRTC, and it's amazingly cool. You should check it out. All right, I'd like to plug. It's a, I guess it's a type of an event called uh, Papers We Love. Idea is that, yeah, it's like a meetup, and you get a bunch of people. They pick a paper, and then they kind of give a, a TLDR of the paper to the group. There's one just started here in Singapore, and yeah, I've been blown away by the stuff that I've learned through this. Uh, it's just just opens whole new whole new doors because you know a lot of papers, scientific papers, are often very dense, and so you know it puts one person through the um, the hard task of extracting the useful content out of it and presenting it in an entertaining way. So if you can find a Papers We Love meetup near you, uh, I'd recommend going, sign yourself up for like picking a paper, especially about something you don't know about because you'll learn a lot about while you know, preparing for your talk. And if you don't have one of these meetups, I recommend just go start one. Second thing I'd like to plug is uh, Matthias uh, Boos, Mad Madsen, uh, Maffintosh. Uh, he's another one of the guys behind the WebTorrent project. Uh, he came out to CampJS and He's you know awesome dude, and but his GitHub repositories are just awesome. It's just like a wealth of like just cool stuff. He's got lots of like mathy stuff, lots of stuff to do with like database replication stuff. It's I don't know. It was a learning experience just going through his repos. So um, lots of useful stuff in there. Um, I recommend checking him out. GitHub.com/slash/maffintosh. Upcoming events. So. Things that are happening um, soon uh, is One Shot Budapest, which is happening in November 21st. Uh, you can go to oneshot.risingstack.com to find out more information about that. Uh, yep, I'll be speaking there. Oh, awesome. I'll be speaking there at One Shot. It'll be a great conference then. Then we've got JSConf Asia coming up. That's in Singapore, November 20th, 22nd, 2014.jsconf.asia. I'm doing a node school there. A bunch of cool people are speaking. Michael's speaking. A bunch of Bunch of good speakers. Recommend coming out. JS Fest Oakland. It's happening uh, December 7th to 13th. And you can find out more information about that at oakland.jsfest.com. So that's us. Thanks very much for listening. Follow NodeUp on Twitter if you're interested in sponsoring NodeUp and having one of our excellent presenters present your sponsorship text. Please email nodeup at gmail.com. And yeah, thanks a lot. Catch you later. Right Cheers. On.